Hello and welcome to Afternoonified. The podcast where you'll learn that actually Afternoonified is the name of the show and its episodes are Afternoonified's monsters. I'm Sarah. And I'm Emily. I thought we were Afternoonified's monsters. I think I'm trying way too hard to make this joke work. My we're actually afternoonified's Igor's joke is funnier the fifth time around, or if it's losing steam. I guess it probably uh, depends on whether or not you've heard the previous recording of this episode, uh, which I'm assuming our listeners will not have. It's a real Donner Party situation out here, which is just what we call it when we have trouble recording an episode. No one had to eat each other yet. Yes, this could be a long recording. You said you had 12 pages of notes. That's a lot for me. I usually give up about seven. So, All right. So today we are going to be talking about Mary Shelley, uh, who you may know um, best as the writer of a little book called Frankenstein. I don't know if Is it a little book? I, I haven't held an actual copy of it. I don't, I don't know. know it's, about, it's about 70,000 words. So it's not like a huge novel. It's respectable. That's it's an respect- amount of words that I am comfortable reading. <laughs> yeah. It is certainly no like war and peace or, you know, those like famously thick books that take you like, you know, that you can use as a weapon. But like it is certainly novel length. Okay. So that's impressive um, <laughs> with the small amount that I know of the writing of this book. Yeah. And well, you are going to learn more, which is great. Um, so before I jump into this, let's list my sources. Uh, the first is The Lady and Her Monsters, which is a book by Roseanne Montillo. I didn't actually read it for this podcast. I listened to the audiobook of it this summer. Uh, and I'm not citing it directly, but I assume some of that knowledge is still floating around in my brain. So we're just going to- Who's gonna... the narrator for the audiobook? Do you remember? I don't know. Some lady. No, no one that you would like, no. <laughs> okay. Just a lady. Yeah. Just, I'm sure she's like very good at her job and has read more books, but I did not recognize her name. She's well known in the audiobook community, possibly. I'm sure she is. Yes. Uh, I also um, got- information from ThoughtCo, Wikipedia, uh, the Paris Review, and then kind of like a scattering of like just um, ad hoc articles across the internet, usually on Victor- uh, uh, on uh, university websites. Those are handy. Um, the first is an article by Olivia Rutliano on LitHub, um, one from Andreas Tiber on Brandis University's website, and one by Charlotte Paps Kastner um, for Victorian Web. Uh, and then I also used a timeline that I found on the History of Science Museum at the University of Oxford, which was so rare to just like get a timeline. Those are some dense sources for an autobiography too. Yeah, they're all very well sourced. Like they're all citing books. So I'm going to assume that they are at least more or less know what they're <laughs> doing. Um, at least more so than me. Like one of my favorite <laughs> critiques is... Oh, you you just get stuff off the internet. You don't read books. It's like no one is fact checking the books either. No, I think you would probably find that a lot of like the books are, you know, also just repeating information that they've read on some other book. And like, it's it's a whole cycle. History is interesting, as I've learned that the course of this podcast. History is a big, well, I heard. Pretty much. That's that's a really good way to sum it up. Thank you for that. I, I, that's about what I'm going to contribute intellectually to this episode. So, so yeah, we're going to talk about Mary Shelley today. Uh, and Mary Shelley was born on London, in London, not on London, in London. On well, August, technically on London. On ground in London. Yeah, you call it that. <laughs> that is such a weird way to say it. Yes, I was born on the ground of Eugene, Oregon. In a hospital, but on the grounds of the city of Eugene. Yeah, within city limits. So in the grounds of, yeah, (laughs) this is off to a great start. It's clearly uh, a weird Friday afternoon. Why do you think Dickens' (sighs) books are so long? It's because he stretches shit out like that. (laughs) <laughs> the British men, dude. Yeah. So Mary Shelley was born in London on August 30th, 1797 as Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin. And she was the daughter of two prominent radical writers and members of the Enlightenment, Enlightenment movement, Mary Wollstonecraft and William Godwin. Uh, and I'm going to apologize in advance because there are five names in this story and many more characters than there are names. It's the first time we tried to record this episode. I got very confused about the Marys. But I'm on track now. 
And they're not the only two Marys. There's at least one more Mary in this episode. Um, but first, we're going to talk about Mary Shelley's mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, because she is an interesting person in her own right and probably deserves her own episode. But we're going to get kind of the cliff, snow- cliff notes of her life before we get into is it cliff her notes? daughter. Cliff's notes? Is a dude named Cliff providing the notes? I think, yeah, I think that's at least how it started. I don't think there's still a man named Cliff writing each and every Cliff's notes. But I think that's, that's a weird, like, that's a name you wouldn't expect. Wouldn't, what, yeah, it'd be like, oh, this is, this is Chad's notes. Like, it is a weird Friday afternoon. I'm sorry. I Keep think going. it's, uh, ironically, I think it's something entirely else in like Canada. It's another person's name. I'm sure it's Lady Reginald's notes. Yes, Reginald. That's exactly who it is. The most Canadian name. <laughs> Reggie. Reggie. So a writer in a time when very few women were able to make a living that way, Mary Wollstonecraft, Mary Shelley's mother, is best known for writing A Vindication of the Rights of Women, uh, which is a pivotal feminist text in which she argues that actually women aren't inferior to men and only seem that way because no one gives them an education. She well actually them? Pretty much. It's directly a, a response to something she wrote on A Vindication of the Rights of Man, which is a response to another person write, just writing on the rights of man. And I don't know exactly what the through line is through all of those and what exactly they are responding to. But it's like not necessarily like a standalone thing. It is something that is written respond in like in response to something else, if that makes sense. So, yeah, it, it does sound like, well, actually, women are people. Um, <laughs> yeah, correct. And, you know, it's kind of a revolutionary thought for the 18th century. So we'll give her that. Sure. She's not the problem. She is not. No, let's, we're not going to make fun of Mary. Well, here we go. Uh, she also had a notoriously messy love life, which does sound like I'm making fun of Mary Wollstonecraft. Um, but I mentioned this not to like diminish her accomplishments or the importance of her writing because it's very important, informative. Um, but because I think it makes her very relatable and human. And I think there's this tendency to view important and influential historical figures as solemn and serious and dignified people. And every person you're going to meet in this episode were ticketed passengers on the hot mess express. Uh, yeah. I mean, they can't all be Sylvia Plath. Like. <laughs> also, I just love 18th century gossip. So there's that. Oh God. Yes. They went out without a chaperone. They showed their ankles. Scandalous. So while living in London in the early 1790s, Wollstonecraft made the acquaintance of the artist Henry Fuseli, whose name you might not know, but whose work you've definitely seen. So do you remember the painting, The Nightmare? I have some knowledge of it. It's the one, if you listeners had not are not familiar with it. It is the one with like the lady kind of like sprawled out on the bed and there's a weird kind of goblin man sitting on her chest. It's the sleep paralysis yes, painting. It is a sleep paralysis painting. Uh with the horse pervert the, in the background. <laughs> with the weird fucking we discussed this last time. There's a weird horse in the background who may or may not symbolize Which I, penis. Like <laughs> Yeah, Sarah had to point the horse. I've seen this painting so many times, but either they like kind of crop the horse out or like that everything happening in the foreground is just so much that you don't notice yeah. the horse cuck in the background. And I think, honestly, like, the horse is the worst part of the painting. There's <laughs> something real off about that horse. Why is he there? Why is did the, did the demon ride the horse to the lady's room? Does she allow the horse in her bedroom? Like, I have questions. Why is the horse there is a great question. So <laughs> that's a question that you can ask yourself every day. <laughs> why is the, why horse- is the horse there? Uh, so yeah, that's that's Henry Fuseli. Uh, so you know him. Uh, Wollstonecraft was, by her own admission, enraptured by his genius. Uh, the quote from her is, the grandeur of his soul, that quickness of comprehension, uh, which is ironic because Fuseli had so- held some pretty troubling views on women and was, by all accounts, a pervert, as you can probably imagine. I mean, that sounds about right for someone who has a name that makes it sound like he owns an old-timey ice cream shop. <laughs> More like pasta, but I, I can see it. <laughs> Uh, pasta and ice pasta cream. Pasta and ice cream. The two best things. He was also married, though. Yeah, that'll do it. Yeah, th- uh, that didn't stop Wollstonecraft, necessarily. She she decided, um, you know, she could live along with Fuseli and his wife um, in a platonic relationship. Um, yeah. Okay. That might be stretching the use of that word. Uh, his wife, absolutely not on board with <laughs> this. Uh, and so he was forced to break off the relationship. So I guess she couldn't just divorce the ice cream man. Like, because it was the late 1700s or the mid 1700s. 
It was too early for divorce to be a thing. Well, I mean, divorce was definitely a thing, but not like a socially acceptable thing. Yeah, you kind of had to be the king, right? Yeah. And also, like, if you're a woman and you kind of need a man to support you because you can't get a job necessarily, there's not a lot of options for you besides get married. So... Yeah, no one won in that situation. Uh, So Half to put some distance between herself and that embarrassment uh, in Half because she was (laughs) genuinely inspired by uh, the French Revolution, Wollstonecraft traveled to France where she would write the famous A Vindication of the Rights of Women in 1791. Uh, It is also where... Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to make a Hamilton joke, but that was like 20 years before. Oh, the American Revolution you mean was 20 years before? Yeah. I I don't know where my brain is today. (laughs) It is, just to give everybody a peek behind the curtain, it is the Friday after Thanksgiving. It's like the middle of the afternoon. We're both very tired. Everything about this is wrong. <laughs> Which is not to say that this isn't the energy we bring to most of our recordings, but here we go. I'm just less drunk because it's 12 o'clock in the <laughs> afternoon. That's definitely the culprit. Uh, so <laughs> France is also where Mary Wollstonecraft would meet Gilbert Imlay, who is an American businessman and diplomat. Uh, and since she was wholly uninterested in living by the social norms of a quote unquote respectable British woman, uh, Wollstonecraft pursued a sexual relationship with Imlay and even shared a home with him, uh, despite the fact that they were never legally married. Well, they don't give a shit about that in France. They do not. Especially not uh, in 1791, where most people are still getting their heads chopped off. <laughs> so, yeah, the bigger issues. Yeah, a lot of stuff, a lot of other shit going down. Uh, so in May 1794, Mary Wollstonecraft gave birth to their daughter, who, which she named, who she would name Fanny after a close friend. <laughs> uh, I'm just going to let yes, that go. Yes, her name was Fanny. <laughs> after a close friend. How close? <laughs> Everyone go ahead and make their own jokes about Fanny in your head. This is my daughter, Labia. Uh, however, Imlay, who often spent time abroad, would leave France for England that August, and despite promising Wollstonecraft he would return, uh, he never did. That sounds about right for a man. I don't know why I'm <laughs> saying that. I've never had that bad of an experience, but men. Uh, she would follow him back to London in April, though it soon became apparent that her relationship with him was over. Uh uh, I mean, to be fair, he kind of made that clear when he didn't come back. Like, she could have saved herself some, like, train fare and just let it yeah, go. Yeah, he would think. Um, but, but they had a daughter, They I had guess. a daughter, and this was not Mary Wollstonecraft's style. Um, her style was to attempt suicide twice. Uh, first by an overdose of laudanum, and then by jumping the River Thames. Uh, so, fortunately for her, for her and for us, because otherwise this would be a very short episode, <laughs> a stranger saw her jump and was able to rescue her from the water. So. Thank God. Thanks, stranger. <laughs> so once recovered and with Imlay fully out of the picture, Wollstonecraft began to focus on her writing once again. So in London, her literary circle soon expanded to include William Godwin, whose name you might recognize from, you know, 10 minutes ago before all of this nonsense. Uh, <laughs> he was a fellow writer and radical, and he is known today as the founder of philosophical anarchism, believing that government was a corrupting force in society and would eventually become unnecessary altogether. So... I understand that we des- like we need these people. Um, they are very important. Their ideas are important. God, I would not want to be stuck at a party talking to any of these people. <laughs> no, I imagine they were all very insufferable. Just a uh, lot of big it's thoughts. Like, oh, did you catch a new episode of Ghosts? It's like the government is... Oh, the government is wholly unnecessary. Like, George, I just, wanted to, I just wanted to talk about The Bachelor. Can you just let it go for like five minutes? Uh, he did have... I live in Portland. I know yeah, these people. These are basically just transpose modern day Portland <laughs> into 1790s London. Uh, Godwin did have a fun side, I think. Uh, he penned the novel Caleb William- Williams, which is widely considered to be the first fictive thriller. Hell so, yeah, dude. Good for him. So what began as a friendship quickly deepened into a love affair. And less than a year after their paths first crossed, Wollstonecraft was pregnant with Godwin's child. Uh, Sounds about right. <laughs> controversially, um, not so much in London in general, but kind of within their own social social circle circles uh they decided that they were going to get married uh both had written and spoken against the idea of marriage as an institution um wollstonecraft believed women had absolutely nothing to gain through marriage which in this era definitely not wrong uh and godwin had even called for the abolition of it altogether so you can argue it's a little hypocritical but when it came down to it they were more concerned about making life easier for their child and like understanding the reality that legitimacy brought social respectability. And that's what they wanted for her. I do respect that. It's not like the parents that are like, my two-year-old is going to be vegan because of my ideals. It's like, way to make them weird. Yes. Uh, and it's certainly not like you can believe in something in a theoretical sense 
but in the practical sense, know that like, you know, we live in a society and sometimes you do need to yeah, live by society's rules just a little bit. It's like you can be against capitalism, but you still have to pay your bill. Yeah. Like, you know, do your part to try to change it. But sometimes you, you have to live in society. Yes, correct. Uh, so Mary Wollstonecraft and William Godwin married in 1797. And their daughter, Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin, would be born on August 30th of that year. So this is the really deeply upsetting part of the episode. While the labor had gone relatively smoothly, the placenta had broken apart during birth, which put Wollstonecraft in danger of a fatal hemorrhage. Oh, yeah, I forgot you gave everyone a, uh, a big trigger warning oh, yeah, I'm gonna before just, we did this last time. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and put that right here. If you don't want to hear the most unpleasant thing uh, you've in this entire episode and you're just squeamish around you know, childbirth and things like that, um, go ahead and like skip 30 seconds. <laughs> I'm trapped. Yes. Emily now has to listen to this a second time. So Godwin called a doctor who had to remove the pieces of the placenta one by one. And while it appears that he was successful in this, uh, he was also an 18th century doctor who didn't wash his damn hands. That is the most upsetting part of the whole thing. Like broken apart placenta, all deal. Yeah. like, But like. Yeah, germ theory, not a thing during this time. Doctors washing their hands, also not a thing. So God, we were so dumb. It was great for everybody involved. Uh, so Wollstonecraft would later die of septicemia, then known as childbed fever. This happened so frequently. Uh, 10 days after her daughter's birth, when she's only 30 years old. Childbed fever does sound like a uh, like a bluegrass song. <laughs> yes. Someone go write us that tune on a banjo. Sure, it'll be great for everybody. <laughs> Maybe a little washboard in there. <laughs> so Godwin would raise Mary alone, at least during the early years of her life, uh, though he took care to impart her mother's wisdom on her the best as best he could. Uh, when she was young, he would often take her to visit her mother's grave at St. Pancras Churchyard. Uh, and because they shared the same name, Mary learned to write hers by tracing the letters on her mother's headstone. This is so goth this and is- cool. This is like the origin of the most gothic baby you've ever known. Uh, Godwin wanted to make sure Mary knew her mother and read her writings and understood what a brilliant visionary woman she was. And with this, to some degree, came the understanding, at least insofar as like how Mary had internalized it, uh, that she it was her herself who had caused the death of this amazing woman, even if it was indirectly. I feel like that was a common theme for like that time period. Yeah, and. I just want to be clear. I am not blaming Mary Shelley for killing her mother. Uh, that was the doctor. No, it was the doctor didn't wash didn't his goddamn wash his hands. hands. But like, this is, I think, how Mary understood the cause and effect of that. And that is what she you know, will later bring her writing, like how she lives her life. And so it's just, you know, a part of her psychology, I think, is important to understand. Oh, yeah. So as she grew up, Wilsoncraft's grave would become a sanctuary for Mary, who would go there to read when she wanted solitude. And she was going to need it. So when Mary was four, Godwin would marry again, this time to a third Mary, Mary Jane Claremont. Oh my God. Who we are henceforth going to be um, calling Mrs. Claremont simply because there's too many of the same names here. Uh, So she brought two children from an existing relationship named Charles and Jane, and along with Wollstonecraft's first daughter, Fanny, who Godwin was also raising. It's not forget about poor Fanny, like everybody else did. Never forget Fanny. They became a family of six, which is too many. many. Uh, Mary was definitely, however, Godwin's clear favorite. Uh, He called her pretty little Mary and hyper fixated on any little moment that suggested she might be more clever than her her sister or her stepsibling. She was the only one that was his. It makes sense. I'm not saying it's good, but it makes sense. Yeah. And yeah, and I think it's more that he wanted, it was proof that like, because she was his progeny, she was naturally smarter, which is not how it works, but how, you know, people would have said how it works. I was thinking it more like maybe she reminded him of her her mother. Oh, yeah. Um, That's a good point, too. Like, I'm sure she did. Which is also a good way to traumatize your child in a a way that you don't mean to. (laughs) Oh, yeah. You are so much like your mother. Please live up to your famous, beautiful, you know, wonderful, amazing mother. Perfect mother standards. Yes. Yeah. No problem there. Uh, Your mother was... No, because she... So the thing, a little embarrassingly, almost, after Mary Wollstonecraft's death, Godwin uh, basically decided he was going to memorialize her by, like, writing her biography. And he included all, like, the scandalous stuff, like her affairs and the suicide attempts and all of that. And, like, I think he really... He had, like, good intentions behind it because he wanted to, like, show her as a full person. 
but it's also, yeah, like the turn of the century, like society is not going to like take that and have a positive. It's not going to yeah. can't imagine why you'd think that. <laughs> Well-intentioned, but maybe not super smart. Maybe leave some of the tea in the pot. Yeah. Just to clarify that like Mary was also completely like aware of her mother's faults, not necessarily faults, but like that she was an imperfect person and that she's human and not just like, like this a, beautiful a, woman on a pedestal. That's good, I guess, you know? I think it is something that would be understood more nu- in a more nuanced way in our time, but was maybe not appropriate yeah. uh, for the time that they no were No one was in. going to therapy in 17-whatever. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh, so many people in this episode could have benefited from just a little bit of therapy. I have started doing this thing that I don't like love, uh, where when I'm watching a horror movie and like something happens to someone, I'm like, God damn it, they're going to need so much therapy to deal with that. Like, I was watching Thanksgiving yesterday, and, like, it's very brutal. And, like, I was just watching this, like, oh, they're so fucked up forever. Yeah, I I can't imagine the therapy you would need after living through any horror. It doesn't seem fun. Yeah, yeah, like, there's got to be one where you come out of it and you're like, all right. I can't think of any right now. (laughs) Uh, Definitely not uh, any that I have seen. No, all of the Conjuring movies. You're, I mean, like the the newest Insidious was basically about how that whole family needed to go to therapy and they didn't. <laughs> yeah, you never get to see the aftermath of these horror movies um, where, you know, they have a total well, mental I mean, breakdown. If you look at the, the new Halloween movies, uh, they did a pretty good job showing how like Jamie Lee Cur- Curtis's character was like scarred for life and thus ruined the life of her children. Yeah. That's fair. I think that's also like a new phenomenon in horror movies, though, where like people have now acknowledged like, oh, yeah, this would really fuck you up. Let's explore that (laughs) new kind of terror. How does that make you feel paranoid? It makes me feel paranoid. Deeply paranoid and broken as a person. Uh, (laughs) So with Mary as Godwin's favorite, um, unsurprisingly, this caused some strain with her new stepmother. Uh, Mrs. Claremont was apparently jealous of her close relationship with her father, um, as well as just like, yeah, it sucks. As well as just the general... That's just such a horse shit thing. Like, they use it in movies and stuff all the time. And it's like, get the fuck over yourself. Yeah, for real. Uh, she also appeared to be jealous of just, like, the fascination. Like, they would have visitors over to the house. Um, and they were always... They always wanted to meet Mary because she was, you know, Mary Wollstonecraft's daughter and William Godwin's daughter. And that made her special to everybody. Uh, it's a child. Yeah, like, again... <laughs> You're competing with a child. Good luck living up to these expectations. And also, your stepmother is now jealous of you. So she would pile chores on Mary and open her letters, which I think is probably the worst thing. And while Claremont's own daughter was sent to boarding school, Mary herself never received any formal education. Uh, So she learned at home instead, uh, being educated primarily by Godwin, dropping on the intellectual debates conducted with his literary friends, uh, who were, to be fair, like big deals. Like we're talking Williams were... William Wordsworth and Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Uh, So, you know, big deals. If you're a big nerd now, but like at the time. (laughs) Uh, In 1806, (laughs) there's a story where Mary and Jane hid under the sofa in the family's parlor as Samuel Taylor Coleridge gave a reading of his most famous poem and the one you've probably heard of, heard of any of his, uh, The Rhyme of the Mariner, uh, which would stick in Mary's brain for decades and later inspire her own writing. I'm sure it was a banger. I remember it as being pretty good. It's been probably since college since I've read the whole thing, but... I I remember it as a poem I read, so that's a good start. (laughs) That is a good sign. Uh, Mary would begin writing her own stories as young as 10 or 11, uh, some of which were published by her father, because that's kind of how his money is. Like, he and his wife started, like, a little publishing. They, like, published children's books and things like that. So that was kind of what he was up to. That's cute. Yeah. In 1812, just before Mary's 15th birthday, she was sent to live with a family friend near Dundee, Scotland, uh, mostly to put some distance between her and her stepmother. Um, Exile kind of actually suited Mary, so she thrived in Scotland, and so did her imagination. Uh, So in the age, I like how you consider moving to Scotland exiled. Essentially, they're like, you need to get out of London because your stepmom hates you. So we're just going to send you away. So you're out of her hair. Yeah, this is definitely your fault that this grown woman has beef with (laughs) you. Yeah, correct. In the 1831 introduction to Frankenstein, she wrote, quote, I wrote then, but in a most commonplace style, it was beneath the trees of the grounds belonging to our house on the bleak signs bleak sides of the woodless mountaineer that my true compositions, the airy flights of my imagined born and fostered. Uh, she would return to Scotland the next summer, but not before a fateful meeting that would change the course of her life. Mary would first meet the poet Percy Bysshe Shelley on a visit home to England in November 1812. More like Percy bitch, Shelley. 
I don't know. Correct. (laughs) Uh, We'll get into Percy. Uh, So he was the son of a baronet and a member of an exceedingly wealthy family. uh, And he had been deeply influenced by Godwin's writing. Oh, God. So he'd been educated at Eton and even attended Oxford for a bit, only to be expelled with his friend Thomas Jefferson Hogg. (laughs) for publishing a pamphlet on the necessity of atheism. Well, that'll get you in trouble. <laughs> yeah. yeah, in Oxford, uh, England in like 1801. Sure. Yeah. Or Well, not 1801, like 1810, probably. I don't know. A bad time. Bad time to be an atheist. Uh, his family, as you can imagine, was less than thrilled and they were largely estranged. Uh, Percy had a bad habit of redistributing his wealth to the less advantaged, Godwin included. Uh, and as a result, his family did just about all they could <laughs> to restrict his access to their money, which yeah. is going to make life very interesting for Percy Shelley. Oh, is it? Does Percy Shelley have an interesting life, Sarah? Oh, boy, does he? Uh, so Percy wasn't all about politics. He also wrote poetry and novels. And by the age of 17, he had already published two Gothic romances. So while it doesn't appear that their first meeting made much of an impression on either of them, uh, Mary and Percy were reintroduced in March of 1814 after Mary's return from Scotland. At this point, she was 16. Percy was 21. Cool. And he was enamored by her beauty, her intelligence, and of course, her identity as a daughter of two radical influential writers. I feel like that was probably the headliner. I mean, she was cute. Like, Mary Shelley was cute, but... Yeah, I mean, it was easy for Percy Shelley to fall in love with folks, but I think that definitely put her a little step above the rest. To Mary, Percy was generous, idealistic, a literary genius, uh, and not for nothing, but he was, by all accounts, very good looking. Yeah, I'll Um, give him that. He was also married to another 16-year-old girl uh, named Harriet Westbrook. And together they had one child and Harriet was already pregnant with a second. I'm sorry, she was 16. So so it really does seem Mary loved Percy very deeply. Um, but Percy Shelley was the fucking worst. He was a, a little fuckboy. Like, yeah, he like yeah, was fun. He, but fuckboy 100% it. Uh, she was 16. So I guess she probably didn't know better. And like free love was all the rage in their circles. So maybe the fact that he had a wife didn't seem like that much of an obstacle. Uh, it certainly didn't stop Percy from flirting with other girls in the house no of course (sighs) fuck boy yeah so with the understanding that neither godwin nor his wife approved of their relationship surprise surprise uh mary and percy would often resort to taking secret walks together frequently to the churchyard at st pancras where mary's mother was buried as this was her favorite place so she wanted to show him you know her where she liked to go on her first date they went to her mom's grave oh it could oh emily oh emily just wait uh, it was there on June 26th, 1814, that Mary first confessed her love and Percy reciprocated. Um, it's also very likely that this is where they first had sex as well. Oh, God. Okay. Maybe not directly on her mother's grave. Near. Definitely nearby. Uh, this feels like one of those stories that is probably apocryphal, but most stories actually, most scholars actually do agree that this was something that happened. That this is, this sounds like something she'd do. <laughs> yeah. You can honestly not get any more goth than Mary Shelley. Beat that. Lose your virginity on your mother's grave. Well, that was upsetting to hear. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, unfortunately, maybe fortunately, uh, once Godwin became aware of their affair, he forbid the two from seeing each other uh, and forbid Percy from visiting the house, uh, despite still being perfectly happy to take his money when he could get it. Some teenage shit. Seems that Mary, at least initially, had every intention of abiding by her father's wishes. Uh, but then Percy kept showing up at the house threatening suicide. Oh. Until Mary, convinced that he truly did love her, agreed that they would run away together. And I do this several times in my notes where I just write the word girl. Dramatic ass motherfucker. Both of them. <laughs> They're just a fucking, like I said, hot mess express. Everybody. Boop, boop. <laughs> so. <laughs> All aboard. On July 28th, 1814, uh, the couple eloped and left England for continental Europe with Mary's stepsister, Jane, who around this time began calling herself Claire Claremont. Wondering when Uh, that would come up. Yep, she's tagging along now. So uh, no one really seems to know or at least give a reason for why Claire decided to come with. Um, It seems like she probably just wanted to get out of the house, too. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like her mom was kind of a bitch. Yeah. So together, the three traveled to Paris and then on through France, Germany, Holland, Switzerland, living off the money Percy had promised Godwin and not much else. Is there not, you know, 
They're not made money, I tell you that. Uh, so during their travels, Mary and Percy kept a joint journal, which Mary would later use as material for a later travelogue entitled History of a Six Weeks Tour. That's kind of cute. It is, yeah. Uh, they couldn't officially get married because, um, as you may recall, um, Percy was already married, uh, but they did live together as if they were. Fair enough, I guess. I mean, that poor 16-year-old girl with two kids that he abandoned. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so by September, they had already run out of money. So they came back to London, uh, with Percy cut off from his family and Mary's father, Riffy Port. They moved in with Claire and Percy resorted to begging his friends to lend them money. Uh, and they were going to need it because not only was Mary pregnant, uh, but Percy's wife, Harriet, who by now had had their second child, uh, was suing him for financial support. Fair enough. Percy spent most of his time either hiding debt collectors or canoodling with Claire, with whom he had begun a relationship because he is the fucking worst. Uh, um, I don't know. If, to be fair, I don't know if that's the right words for this. Uh, he did try to set Mary up with his friend Thomas Hogg. No, that's not uh, who, to be fair. Who apparently had a habit of sharing Percy's girlfriends. God, which is gross. Um, Mary did refuse this. Uh, it seems she was less against the affair on principle and just simply wasn't interested in sleeping with Hogg because she she only had eyes for Percy, which, again, girl. I don't know. I mean, his last name is Hogg. Like, give him a chance. Uh, so in February 1815, Mary gave birth to a baby girl two months mature. She lived only two weeks. And shortly after the death, she recorded in her journal, dream that my little baby came to life again, that it had only been cold and that we rubbed it before the fire and it lived. It's not a puppy, Mary. (sighs) Yeah. Uh, Mary was understandably devastated and suffered from depression in the months following the loss. Um, But by summer, she was pregnant again and Percy's finances stabilized after inheriting some of his grandfather's estate. So things are looking up. Sure. Maybe. Uh, in January 1816, Mary gave birth to her second child, a baby boy, and named William after her father. And again, because we can only have four names. Of course. Everyone names everyone else after someone else, which means that you have 96 Marys. Yep. Uh, so during all this, Claire, who was still living with the couple at this time, uh, spent the spring of 1816 engaged in an affair with George Gordon, better known to the world as the poet Lord Byron. There it is. Uh, he, yep. He was a leading figure in the romantic movement. He is widely considered to be one of the greatest English poets. Uh, and he is also history's greatest fuckboy. Yeah, I was going to say Percy and Shelley were just like the Burton Ernie of being fuckboys in the Victorian era. Or no, the early 1800s. So this is before Victorian era. So yeah, this is still technically Regency, I think. Um, yeah, Percy Shelley is the worst, but Lord Byron is the worst. Uh, we're not going to get into it. This actually, this episode came to me as like, maybe I should do an episode about Percy or I'm sorry, about Lord Byron, history's greatest fuckboy. Um, but I decided that would just be too angry and that it's, Mary Shelley was probably more interesting anyway. I guess to like put it in perspective for you young people who actually aren't that young because this in itself is a dated reference. It's like if uh, Shelley were uh, Nate Archibald and Byron was Chuck Bass. Like, one of them's pretty bad, but then you have a fucking monster. Oh my god, that's completely correct. (laughs) Yeah, you can picture them wearing, like, little blazers, right? Yeah, this is also exactly how I'm going to be picturing them for the rest of this fucking episode. You're welcome. Uh, While the fair uh, Byron had with Claire was relatively brief, he did manage to get her pregnant. God damn it. Uh, Come come summer, she convinced Mary and Percy to travel to Switzerland, where they would stay in a chalet on the lake and the banks of Lake Neva. Uh, The chalet was, coincidentally or not, uh, within walking distance of the Villa Diodati, where Byron was staying with personal physician Dr. John William Polidori. Probably not related at all. Um, No. <laughs> I, I told you about the film Haunted Summer during our last attempt at recording. But oh, this, yeah, This is right. the summer that the movie is about. Yeah, this is the, the famous summer. Uh, and it was an uncharacteristically and famously, again, uh, rainy and moody one due to the eruption of Mount Tambora in Bawa, Indonesia the previous year. Have you heard about this? No. A volcano made it rainy? <laughs> yeah. So this eruption was so severe, it reduced Tambora's heights by a third and covered the island in lava flows. So of the 12,000 residents living in the province, like 26 people made it out. Oh, God. It was a big eruption. 
So volcanic ash blanketed the ground in piles over a meter high and circulated in the upper atmosphere for years, blocking up the sun. So this actually happened, I think, year before this summer, and it was still affecting the weather. (laughs) So temperatures dropped more than 18 degrees in Europe and caused crop failures and famine across the continent. Probably use one of those right now, you know? Yeah, that would be kind of handy. <laughs> Interestingly enough, we were just talking with my dad yesterday. Like they had a really good harvest this year and they were talking with some agronomist somewhere, but the theory is actually that like all of the wildfire smoke, like actually something there was more carbon in the air or it like kind of helped block out the sun. So it wasn't quite as harsh on the corn, but it essentially made for like a really good harvest because of all the smoke. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know exactly the science behind that, but it's crazy to think about. Crazy to think about cause and effect. Yes, correct. (laughs) Uh, So the Alpine region where they were staying was hit particularly hard. And Mary wrote in her journal of strong winds and thunderstorms, grander and more terrific than I've ever seen for. Yeah, it sounds like the perfect weather for these little god motherfuckers. Oh, yeah, for sure. (laughs) So predictably, they spent a lot of time inside, um, during which both Mary and Percy grew close with Lord Byron. They spent their evenings having literary and philosophical discussions and, as all good goth kids do, reading spooky stories. Oh, that's not where I thought you were going with that. I mean, it makes sense, but... Were you I'm, picturing, like, full-on orgies? orgies? Maybe. N- I I have read no accounts of this. Oh, but they happened. <laughs> so, on the evening... Uh, sorry. On one evening in June 1816, everybody gathered around the fireplace to read from Phantasmagallion... Wow. Nope. Wow. <laughs> one evening in June 1816, no, easily I gave up on that. Uh, one evening in June 1816, everyone gathered around the fireplace to read from Phantasmagoriana, a French translation of a German book of ghost stories. Great name, honestly. Uh, it was this night that Byron famously proposed a contest to see who could write the scariest ghost story. So Byron was the worst, but I guess we owe him this one. Me too, yeah. Also, he wrote some cool stuff. Like, I, I'll give him that too. But personally, he was the worst. Well, as we've learned, you can be a complete fucking asshole and still write good stuff. Yeah, it seems like those two things go hand in hand a lot more than we would like. I'm not saying like good people can't write good stuff, but it's almost like authors get so far up their own ass that they don't even realize that they're assholes. Interesting. Yeah, that's a interesting hypothesis. I think you're probably onto something there. <laughs> you know, by the next day, Percy, Byron and Polidori all shared what they'd written so far. Uh, but Mary found herself searching for inspiration. She didn't just want to write a ghost story. She wanted to write something that quote, would speak to the mysterious fears of our nature and awake thrilling horror. One to make the reader dread to look round, to curdle the blood, and to quicken the beatings of the heart. Well, congratulations, Mary. <laughs> she did it. Uh, the men, it seems, quickly lost interest in the contest and went back to their favorite pastime, which was boating around the lake. Because again, of little please do remember, like everybody in the story is between ages of like seven to twenty-four. <laughs> These are just a bunch of dumb teenagers running around Switzerland. Uh, So they're boating around the lake. Mary is still thinking about this ghost story. She's very relatable. She is, yeah. So one night, the discussions turned to experiments in galvanism, or using an electric current to animate the muscles of dead creatures, usually, in the case of the experiments, uh, frogs. Uh, So perhaps a course... Perhaps a corpse could be reanimated, Mary speculated. Galvanism had given token of such things. Um, Later I was listening I- to an episode of Star Talk uh, recently, and um, the the technology isn't like impossible. Do you expand on this, please? Um, I, granted, I listened to it like two weeks ago, um, so it was all kind of hazy. But there is like we can reanimate cells that have been dead. Um, it's just cells at this point, and like there are severe limitations to it, but. Like, we may be able to use electrical currents to reanimate things. Oh, that is interesting. I mean, it makes sense, too, because, like, even now, like, you know, you have the defibrillators. Like, you can restart hearts with an electric shock. Like, not always, but it's certainly a method Sometimes, that's available yeah. to us. Like, yeah. Um, so it's not, like, completely out of the realm of possibility. Yeah, it's <laughs> There's things, it's like, possible. electrical currents can do. Yeah. Uh, so later that evening, Mary had a dream. Um, probably more accurately, she had a nightmare. 
Well, it depends on how hardcore goth you are. Yeah. So this is a quote from her journal. I saw the pale student of unhallowed arts kneeling beside the thing he had put together. I saw the hideous phantasm of a man stretched out and then on the working of some powerful end show signs of life and stir with an uneasy half final motion. Frightful must it be for supremely frightful would be the effect of any human endeavor to mock the stupendous mechanism of the creator of the world. Wow, that sounds familiar. <sighs> The next morning, as the men returned to boating, Mary sat down and began to write her ghost story. Is it really a ghost story? Well, I'd say a horror story is more accurate. Yeah. I mean, I guess the genre didn't really exist prior to this. So, like, what else is she going to call it? Yeah, exactly. So Mary, Claire, and Percy left Switzerland to return to England in August 1816, where they would be met that fall and winter by a double blow of tragedy. So in October of that year, Mary's oldest half-sister, Fanny, successfully completed suicide. Uh, and two months later, Percy's wife, Harriet, the same. So while well, Percy I, would attempt... Sorry, go ahead. I mean, it's very sad, but that I can't imagine Percy was too broken up about that last one. It does not seem that he was. He would attempt to take custody of his two children, um, but Harriet's family did all they could to prevent it, which Fair honestly... Enough. Yeah. Uh, so he was deemed unfit, not... Yep inaccurate. Uh, his lawyer suggested that a more stable domestic life could help him appear more responsible. And as he's now legally allowed to do so, he and Mary would finally marry on December 30th, 1860. Oh, I was imagining a series of Mrs. Doubtfire-like shenanigans to prove to the government that he was... But no, no, he just he just got married. No, he just got married. Though I would love put a to wig see on or version okay. of mm. Mrs. Doubtfire. Uh, so when they got married, she was already pregnant with their third child. Um, the Godwins did attend the wedding, and Mary was finally able to reconcile with her father. So she's got that going for her. <laughs> I mean, her father probably should have seen this coming. Yeah, I think the fact that he was, I don't know, willing to make an honest woman out of her, to borrow a phrase I actually kind of hate. Yeah. Um, probably at least like, okay, like I get... I guess the like, okay, maybe you're actually serious about this and not just, you know, like seducing my daughter for fun, which is what he was doing. Certainly a thing whatever. that Percy Shelley did. Yeah. Uh, so Mary would continue working on her ghost story throughout the next few months, uh, finally finishing it as the book Frankenstein, which again, you you may be familiar with this. I've I've um, heard tell. Um, I think yeah, there was that movie Igor. That was Yep, it's that yep, one. That one. <laughs> Uh, so at the time she wrote Frankenstein, it should be noted, Mary is all of 20 years old. I just, I realized life expectancies were shorter and like people had to grow up faster. But that's just one of those things that like makes 32 year old me be like, fuck you. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like think about what you were doing and like creating at age 20. Like, woof. <laughs> I mean, I was writing more than I was now, but I can't say <laughs> that the fair. quality was great. Yeah. You read it. <laughs> But like, it's okay to write shitty when you're 20, because the point is to learn. The fact that she was able to write great at 20 is insane. Uh, well, I guess Icky. extenuating circumstances. During this time, Mary also revisited the diary she had kept during her travels through Europe, immediately following her alone with Percy, and turned that into a travelogue. Uh, so this was apparently a very fashionable form of literature at the time, um, as a, a lot of the rich kids of England would embark on these grand European tours, which is essentially the Regency equivalent of studying abroad. You Ugh. hop on over to the continent, go to all the big cities, and drink yourself silly, I assume. Come back with an accent <laughs> that you didn't earn. Yeah. Uh, History of a Six-Week Tour would become Mary's first published work, and it was well-received, though it didn't sell terribly well. Uh, it was it was published published shortly after the birth of Mary's daughter, Clara, and was followed by the first edition of Frankenstein on New Year's Day, 18. So Frankenstein, or the modern Prometheus, tells the story of a young scientist, Dr. Victor Frankenstein, who stitches together a bunch of corpse to create a guy. Uh, and then through science, he manages to bring the monster to life, only to lose his own when the creation turns on him. It's just like that story is, I mean, it's so basic, like now, two, 200 and some years later. But like, just the fact that someone like had that idea without any like previous influence in that genre, you know what I mean? It's yeah. fucking crazy. It's insane. Yeah. So Frankenstein, it blends the gothic and the romantic. It is generally regarded as a horror novel, though many consider the use of speculative technology makes it the first science fiction novel as well. It can um, be both. There is it's both science yeah. fiction horror. What do you think Alien is? Yeah, it's essentially the first Alien. Um, <laughs> and I also just lo love the idea that, you know, science fiction was created by a teenage girl or almost a girl. 
a young woman. Um, the the people that are most often excluded from the science fiction and horror spaces is yeah. the genre of woman that created the whole fucking thing. Funny how that work turns out. Yeah, I definitely loved telling people in film school that I liked horror movies and then immediately having this like 35-year-old man with a neck beard being like, oh, what is your favorite 70s horror movie by this director you've never heard of? It's like, eat a yeah. dick. My people yeah. created this. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and like as he mentioned, like this was a groundbreaking novel. Nothing like it had ever been published before. People didn't write like this. Um, and part of the draw was that the novel had been published anonymously. Um, though many did believe Percy Shelley was the author as he had written Ugh. the preface, which is pretty dumb. I don't know why you would make that assumption. Like he won't put his name on the book, but he'll write the preface. So then Yeah, what what the hell is I that? I don't get it. <sighs> Yeah. Uh, there are still conspiracy theories today that no. Percy actually wrote much of it. Um, this is no. dumb. <laughs> uh, Percy certainly contributed. He helped Mary by, you know, editing and helping her compile, put the novel together. Um, but like they've done analysis of the manuscript. It's been shown that at most he contributed maybe four or 5,000 words to like, what is a 72,000 word novel? So the fact that they had to like do analysis and stuff to prove it is just stupid. Cause like no one is like an analyzing the Hobbit to make sure that Tolkien wrote it. I don't think. No, I, I have not seen it. Like that. Ooh, let's no. start a conspiracy yeah. theory. I'm going to say that CS Lewis actually wrote the Hobbit. That's great. I love that. Let's go with that. <laughs> so, so yeah, no, Percy Shelley did not write Frankenstein. Uh, and women are perfectly capable of writing horror, even in the old timey days. So, it's like the literary uh, equivalent of ancient aliens. Essentially, yeah. Despite the success of Frankenstein, the Shelley family was hardcore struggling. Uh, having failed to pay off basically any of his debts, Percy was on the verge of being thrown into debtor's prison. Uh, never mind the real possibility that they could lose custody of their children at any moment because... Uh, that's sad, but throw that bitch in jail and see how he likes it. Send him to fuckboy prison. <laughs> yeah, fuckboy prison. Uh, so in order to avoid this, the couple left for Italy in March 1818, again with Claire. Uh, their first stop was to meet up with Byron. Claire had since given birth to their child, a daughter named Allegra Alba. Uh, and he had agrees to read her, <laughs> agreed to raise her on the condition that Claire have nothing to do with her. But Poor a great Claire. Guy. She was just third wheeling her way through life. She meets a hot <laughs> dude and then he treats her. Claire is the real victim in this story. Claire. Yeah, I have. Honestly, the most sympathy for Claire. It sounds like she was just trying to live her life. Justice for, for Laura her. Dern, <laughs> who I guess that's a callback to something that doesn't exist. Laura Dern played Claire Claremont in Haunted Suburb. Oh, that's right. Yes. Yeah. Justice for Laura Dern. <laughs> uh, so from Byron's place, they traveled to, uh, they traveled through Italy, which sounds like a lot of fun in theory. And expensive. Really expensive only resulted in tragedy. <sighs> so in August 1818, Percy come, um, accompanied Claire to Venice to visit her daughter as her daughter was ill. Um, so was his own daughter, coincidentally. Uh, but Percy didn't seem to take that into account. Uh, instead, he ordered Mary to follow him with the children, and Clara, just a year old, would die of dysentery shortly after their arrival in Venice. I mean, that's not really their fault. Like, people were just dropping dead of shit diseases left, right, and center in that time period. Yeah, and I think it's perfectly feasible that, like, you know, maybe she would have had the same fate had they stayed in one place. But, like, traveling across the country in a carriage probably didn't help. Not great. Um, so Mary blamed Percy for the death, um, not only for demanding that they rush across Italy after him, um, but also in the fact that he never bothered to consult a doctor before demanding said travel because he didn't want to interrupt the conversation he was having with Byron. He's I the worst. <laughs> just the worst. He's just very, he is very self-centered and yeah. He's like the opposite of Mary's father in terms of like child rearing, where like Mary's father was very involved and wanted to make sure they had the best. And like maybe he did that to some degree, but it does feel like he was like, what children? Yeah. An afterthought, as Mary often was. It's well, because well. he has such big, important things to do, like write to his buddy Byron. And yeah, yeah, that's an accurate, I would call that an accurate. Uh, statement. So in June 1819, Mary's second child, William, who was three years old, would also die of malaria in Rome. God. At this point, Mary withdrew from Percy almost completely and again, and again fell into a deep depression. Um, so while Percy left her alone to go hang out with Claire, uh, Mary poured her grief into her writing. Was Percy fucking Claire? Uh, oh, yeah. He definitely was, at least before the affair with Lord Byron. I assume he's also fucking her at this time, too. 
Okay, well, Claire just lost a little bit of my sympathy. <laughs> Maybe a little bit. Uh, so during this time, Mary would write her second novel, Matilde, uh, though it would not be published until 1959, well after Mary's death. Uh, and it certainly doesn't sound like the kind of novel you could publish in 1880. Oh my God, it what was it about? It centers on the incestuous relationship between a father and his daughter. Oh, Um, no. I'm not going to stop and psychoanalyze that, but apparently it reveals a lot of hostility Mary felt not only towards her own father, but her husband as well, which, yeah. She had some shit to work out. Definitely. Yeah. She's working stuff out. I'll have to read that Wikipedia page later. Yeah. So Mary would emerge from her depression only with the birth of her fourth child, a son she named Percy Florence. Again, three names. Why would you name... Uh, uh, no, nope. Florence uh, for the no, city. No, Percy. Was born in. Why would you name him Percy? He's a dick. Because <sighs> it's just what you did, I guess. I'm going through it over here, man. Yeah. This was in November 1819. At this point, Mary and Percy would become close again, at least for a time. Though these happy, okay, this happy occasion would be marred by allegations that Percy had fathered a child with their nursemaid, Elisa. <sighs> Fine, whatever. I, mm. In 1820, the Shelleys would settle near Pisa. They soon made friends with the couple, Edward and Jane Williams. And Percy, being Percy, became completely infatuated with Jane uh, because he's the worst. But the good news is we're not going to have to deal with Percy much longer. Does he die? Does he die horribly? Does he die of dysentery? Well, in the summer of 1822, Percy decided he was going to buy a boat. These fucking men. So, yeah, this is a mystery to me. It's presumably so they could go sailing, but also because, like, Percy was 29 and probably due for a midlife crisis. Yeah, I was just going to ask how old he was. This is his This is his convertible. Yeah. Uh, he named... God. He named the boat Don Juan after his friend Lord Byron's bestseller about a man who devotes his life to seducing okay. women. So, this might be a subject for a mini. Percy and Shelley, they're, they are also fucking, right? Like, that's... Percy and Byron, are, you mean? Yes, they are so far up their each other's asses. Um, I don't know. I never saw anything around there. Byron, it seems, was almost definitely bisexual because he definitely did have affairs with men. I don't know if Percy swung that way, to be honest, but they were certainly close. Certainly. Yeah. I'm not, <laughs> yeah, if they so, were, I'm not like mad about it. Like, fine. It's very hard to be like not straight in that time period, but like, just be honest about it, man. <laughs> Yeah. So after a brief visit to Livorno to visit Byron, of course, Percy and Edward would set sail to return to Larici, where the Williams had a villa, on July 8th, 1822, accompanied by a boatman named Charles Vivon. Uh, none of the three were particularly experienced sailors, and when the boat was caught in a severe storm, they were drowned. Oh, no. Oh, yeah, I know. So tragic. Oh. I mean, someone still died. Like, people still died, but like... Yeah. It's what you get for buying a boat. Yeah. <laughs> it's what you get for buying a boat. I'm just like mad at him. Like he's, yeah, it's, it's really hard to feel a lot of sympathy towards him because it seems like he was not a good person. He just seemed like Throwing he used people until they weren't useful anymore. And then he got bored with them. Like, yeah, just this foppish, like dickhead behavior. Yeah. Truly one of history's greatest fuckboys. boys. And now <laughs> he's dead. Fame. So Percy Shelley's body would wash ashore near Via Reggio 10 days later and could only be identified by his clothing in a copy of a poem by John Keats that was found in his pocket. Mary was left grief-stricken and wrapped with guilt. She had given up so much to be with Percy, her family, her friends, financial security, and now he was just gone. So like her father before her, she focused on her grief. She focused her grief on immortalizing her late husband, writing a biography and publishing a comprehensive collection of his poem. Probably more than he deserved from her, but sure. Yeah. She had hoped in this time that she could rely on Byron and Percy's other friends for support, um, but they all turned on her, believing that she had made the last year of his life miserable. Oh, fuck you! Yeah, you know, with with her depression and grief over her dead children and maybe being a bit, a bit salty that her husband couldn't go five minutes without cheating on her, but... All her fault. Yeah. What a shrew. <laughs> um, <sighs> but that's not... Fortunately, uh, her father would welcome her back to England with open arms, uh, though his own financial troubles kept him from fully supporting her. But at least she has a support network. Thank God. So for a while, Mary turned to her writing, penning essays for The Liberal, which is a periodical which had been founded by Percy and Byron. Um, she also published Valperga, which is a historical novel in 23, and The Last Man in 1826, a post-apocalyptic novel concerning a future version of Europe that's been nearly wiped out by the bubonic plague. So like, she's Boom. just creating concepts for things that we like do constantly. Yes. Yeah. And this was also one of the first, I believe, kind of like post-apocalyptic 
subject pandemic sort of novels too. Uh, eventually, Mary was able to strike a deal with Percy's father that he would pay her an allowance of £100 a year to support her son, Percy Florence, on the condition that she wouldn't publish that biography of Percy that she had just <laughs> written. <laughs> Which, honestly, a good deal. <laughs> Uh, in 1826, Charles Bish, Bish Shelley, who was Percy's son with his first wife, Harriet, died. Oh, right, right, uh, which right, meant, right. Yeah, yeah. Which meant that Percy Florence was now the heir to the Shelley's baronetcy, uh, finally securing Mary some much-needed financial stability. She deserves it, man. Seriously, just like a little bit of like... Just something for just everything stability. that she's had to hold together. Uh, new editions of Frankenstein were published in 1823 and 1831. Uh, the earlier one, edited by her father, was the first to list her as the author. Hell yeah. Uh, the 1831 edition was heavily revised by Mary, placing more emphasis on the power of fate and toning down some of the more radical elements. Uh, and it's this edition that's used by most schools today. Man, I want to read that first edition. What was radical in, you know, 1818? Yeah, I would love to, like, get a at least a summary of, like, what those changes were and what the implications were. Um, I mean, the director's cut is great, but... <laughs> uh, Mary never remarried. The proposals were certainly made. Uh, they were all rejected. She probably just didn't want to deal with men's bullshit anymore. Yeah, fair enough. Um, and I love this. Uh, in pure goth fashion, she... Um, in response to one, she told them, Mary Shelley shall be written on my tomb. <laughs> She's so spooky all the time. God, I love her. <laughs> her focus became her son and her writing. Uh, and over the years, she published a number of works ranging from historical novels to biographies to short stories and essays. Like she's very, obviously very famous for Frankenstein. And that's kind of still the big one. But like she wrote a Ton. I mean, no one ever talks about Bram Stoker's like short fic. I don't know if he has anything else, but yeah, I mean, you get known for like that thing. Yeah. Uh, in 1837, following the death of William Godwin the year before, she published the novel Faulkner about an orphan who finds herself in care of a tyrannical father figure. So, so she still has then, some shit to work out. Yeah, she's definitely working through some stuff. Uh, she also began but never finished a biography of her father. Ooh, uh, she would good. continue to champion her late husband's work, compiling a complete edition of his poems in 1839. Uh, having not been widely read when he was alive, it's really, ironically, only due to Mary that her husband's work became as well-known and admired so, as it is. A real Eliza Hamilton over here. Yep. So you're welcome, Percy Shelley. Uh, she also published a second travelogue, Rambles in Italy and Germany, which documented <laughs> her tour of the continent with her son and his friends from 1840 and 43. <laughs> I'm just imagining like a group of like 16 year old boys just like vacationing and, and then their mom. Yeah. Yeah. I really love that image. It's not, it seems like she and her son were very close, which is very nice for her. Um, but it just kills me that like, you know, he's going to go do his grand tour of Europe and he's going to let his mom tag along. That's very That's darling. Cute. Love it. She's probably paying for it too, but you know. Oh no, no he, he had like a Actually he, it was probably technically his money, yeah. Yeah, never mind. So Mary had been struggling with her health as early as 1839, suffering from headaches and the occasional episode of paralysis. Uh, to be after, fair, a headache is not like with <laughs> her husband was a headache. So <laughs> yeah. she had been suffering from a headache since 1814. His name is Percy <laughs> Shelley. After finishing his education at Trinity College in Cambridge, Percy Florence returned home to live with his mother and eventually inherited his grandfather's baronetcy uh, in fortune in 1844. From then on, the two of them lived in relative comfort. Um, and Mary, by all means, by all accounts, got along really well with Percy's wife, Jane. Um, and it sounds like she spent the last years of her life in peace and comfort, which is what Good. she deserves. She passed away on February 1st, uh, 1851 at the age of 53. Uh, and it's suspected now that she was suffering from a brain tumor, probably all of those headaches. Well, headaches and you said paralysis? Yeah. Yeah, that, so yeah. There was probably something going on, yeah. Uh, Frankenstein continues to be her legacy. And like I said, while it's far from her only novel, it's certainly the most well-known. Um, director Guillermo del Toro, who is reportedly developing an adaptation of the novel with Mia Goth, Andrew Garfield, and Oscar <sighs> Isaac, which I love, uh, has described it as, quote, the quintessential teenage book. You don't belong. You are brought to this world by people that don't care for you and are thrown into a world of pain and suffering and oh tears and hunger. It is an amazing book written by a teenage girl. It's mind blowing. Just love that quote from him. Oh my god, it is. It's yeah. It's like fucking she's all that with a monster. <laughs> she's all that with a monster. Yes. So that's a great quote by Del Toro, and I think this means I actually do have to buckle down and read it now. 
um, once I'm finished reading The Hunger Games, which is the thing I've been doing. Oh, good. That's the one that you decided to <laughs> That's go the with. one. I was like, should I start Frankenstein or should I start The Hunger Games? And I'm just going to be completely honest. The Hunger Games felt like an easier time. I mean, it is. I haven't tried to read Frankenstein, um, but I did try to read Dracula. And I feel like they're like, not the same, but similar in like terms of flowery text. Yeah, a lot of that. Um, I would recommend um, if you are interested in giving Dracula a try again, there's like a newsletter called Dracula Daily, which like essentially sends you an email every couple of days because it's the novel Dracula is all written in like letters and journal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like it sends you those by date. So it like sends you it all chronologically. So a little easier to digest in smaller bits. I tried listening to the Audible audiobook and it was read by a decently famous British man that I can't remember the name of right now. Um, and it just made me sleepy. Yeah. <laughs> that seems fair. Hold on. Let me see if I can find who it was because, like, by all accounts, it should have, because it was like a hot British guy, you know? Ooh. Exactly. That sounds like it might be it. Um, Tom Hiddleston. Tom Hiddleston, I get. That's, yeah, that's a good vibe. It's a good vibe, but, like, his voice is very soothing. <laughs> that definitely sounds like something I would, like, listen to to fall asleep. Ooh, that's a good idea. <laughs> I have definitely done that with historical novels before. It's like, yeah, just fire up an old audiobook of some obscure old-timey text and just... I used to do that with Sherlock Holmes stories. Yeah. Um. All right, well... Damn, that is an incredible woman. Yeah, she definitely led an interesting life. She deserved better. Um, yeah. But I'm glad that she got to spend the last few years of her life with her son and being a cool mom. Yeah, and I'm glad she got to be successful and her true passion. Like, that's great that she was able to, like, make a living writing, or at least most of a living writing. I don't like, think decent- that's more. I think that has less to do with the quality of her writing um, and more so the fact that it probably was just very hard to make a living writing in the 1800s. Well, I feel like um, her husband also probably wasn't great with money. Yeah, I think that's probably <laughs> most of it. Also, uh, just very in I debt. Under- I understand that he was influential and very important, but fuck that guy. I, I can't say I am a fan of Percy Shelley. Just- it's like when you find out that Albert Einstein wasn't great towards women, and you're like, well, fuck. Oh, damn it. I feel like that's the song as old as time. It's it's also one of those things, and I, I feel like it happens more with men, um, just because back in the day, they were the ones getting recognized for stuff. Mm-hmm. But like, there's a, a, a kind of person where they're so admittedly like brilliant that it makes them really stupid about everything else yes so like einstein brilliant mathematician scientist whatever just but that took up so much space that he didn't get the part where he had to be like a a functioning human yeah i think it definitely like bring can bring on i won't say does bring on because you know people are all different but i think it has a tendency to bring on this like sense of superiority that makes you feel like you don't have to be nice people because you're so brilliant and smart and creative and yes they're all beneath you sort of like mentality yeah and it's not always that person's fault because like we hype them up so much but like oh yeah there does have to be a point where you're like i should probably free up some brain space and learn how to like make conversation and like treat people right yeah he would hope but uh not mary shelley she had her shit together i don't she she did not sounds like it um (laughs) i'm glad she had a nightmare on vacation i think (laughs) that's the that's the thing it was i mary shelley had a nightmare on vacation and now we have alien the movie (laughs) yep that's how it happened that's the pipeline yep actually there is an alien movie called prometheus oh yeah of course (laughs) I forgot about that. That is correct. Yeah, where Michael Fassbender becomes maybe the most terrifying evil movie villain um, ever. I'm not exaggerating. I like, believe that. His character is is genuinely, it's that kind of quiet, like, Nazi-like terror. Oh, yeah. Just the, like, subtle, like, oh, this person is evil. a monster. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, there's my opinion on, on Prometheus. Um, there you go. He actually gets worse in uh, Alien... Uh, what's it called um the one after prometheus that i can never remember the name of but danny mcbride isn't it yeah i have no idea i tuned out after it's actually really good um good cast very good cast alien covenant oh yeah i vaguely remember hearing about that one it's good it's very good um anyway 
it's a prequel too. So not a prequel to Prometheus, no. but pre- pre- it's Prometheus. A prequel to Alien. Yes. Oh, between like Prometheus and Alien. Yes, it's like the sequel to Prometheus, which are both prequels to the Alien series. Yes. And I guess Alien versus Predator is technically a prequel to all of those things. Okay, sure. The timeline is really weird. We're not going to get into it. I believe it. you. <laughs> um, so we are on Instagram at Afternoonified. You can also email us at Afternoonifiedpod at gmail.com or find our website at getafternoonified.com where you can also check out our new merch because I finally made it. <gasps> That's right. Uh, you can find the business daddy mug, the are you there, God, it's the Zodiac speaking uh, merch, and uh, I solved the Zodiac cipher and all I got was the stupid notebook notebook. <laughs> <laughs> I finished the business daddy mug and it's awful and this is everyone else's fault except mine. <laughs> it's been months. This has been months in the making. I've been scared of it, but... I mean, that's what you have to do. You have to face your fears to create beautiful art, like Mary Shelley. <laughs> the business daddy mug is my Frankenstein. Um. All right, everybody. We will see you uh, next episode, mini episode. And a uh, reminder that we're taking a brief break in January, but we'll announce that when we get closer to it. <laughs> all right. Goodbye, everybody. For more podcasts like the one you just listened to, go to SoBelowMedia.com. This, this is As Above, So Below.